Gwendolyn Sasser in her book on the war against Ukraine says that Germany needs to decolonize its thinking about Eastern Europe. Uh, that is to say, it's seeing it through Russian eyes. So I looked into it before the recording. Apparently, the geographic centre of the European Union is in a small field in Bavaria. However, the topic of today's conversation, the political centre of Europe, is a lot harder to identify. Historically, it was probably somewhere between France and Germany. But with the war in Ukraine, this centre has seemingly moved east. Poland, not too long ago, was under considerable pressure from Brussels over rule of law skirmishes. Now, countries like Poland and Lithuania are reaping the political benefits of their unambiguous support to Ukraine and their long-established hawkish stance on Russia. Take, for example, how now Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki last week felt like he could lambast Germany for being co-responsible for the mess on the energy market across the EU, and he also urged Berlin to be able to step up its support for Kiev. So, we wanted to map this shift in European politics, and essentially stress test whether this pivot is noise or substance. Hi, I'm Francois. I'll be joined by Jorge and our two guests today. Yana Puglierin, she's joining us again. She's an uncommon decency veteran. Most importantly, she's the head of the European Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. And on the other side of the line, we are very honoured to have Timothy Garton-Ash, an esteemed historian of contemporary Europe who just published Homeland, A Personal History of Europe, which is a book built on his decades of experience roaming across Europe. If you're an uncommon decency veteran and want to support the show, please join us on Patreon, because not only do you help us, but you double your amount of uncommon decency content you get every week by getting access to our patron-only extra. This week, for example, our patrons will get to listen to Timothy and Yana mapping out the nuances of Central and Eastern European politics between Poland and Hungary or Romania and Bulgaria. It's really interesting, and you could help us a lot by joining if you can't, otherwise, please do continue to support us by every other mean possible, including writing a review on Apple Podcasts or by rating the show on Spotify. All of it, and I promise, really helps the show to continue to grow. Now, on to the show. So let's get straight into it. The past year in Europe has been rich in change and political turmoil. So the usual structure in Europe, at least the way we see it, is you get this kind of preemie into Paris countries, which are France and Germany. But Vestasis has been seriously challenged because they haven't managed to really find their voice in the Ukraine moment. And at the same time, you saw the emergence of staunch pro-Ukraine voices in Poland and Lithuania. 
Could you perhaps kind of walk us through this quite remarkable evolution of the past six months? How did New Europe, to use a political term from the early 2000s, manage to shift the continental balance of power? Timothy. So first of all, I don't think this is a story of the last year. I think it's a story of the last 50 years. Um, in my book, Homelands, I tell precisely that story of how uh, the EU has expanded from the six original member states in 1972 to 27 now. Of course, it went south to countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal. It went north to Sweden, Finland and others. But essentially, it was moving east into the area vacated by a declining Russian empire. So it's a much larger historical development that we're talking about. And in a sense, the Ukraine war, the war in Ukraine is just the latest chapter in that story, because it is itself a, a chapter in the decline of the Russian Empire. I am actually somewhat skeptical about the claim that this is a lasting um, shift of power mm. to the East European countries. I think they are playing a major role now because the biggest thing in Europe is happening on their frontiers and their support both militarily, politically and in taking refugees is essential um, to, to the EU support for Ukraine. But I would be skeptical of the claim that when the dust has settled and when finally peace has come, the center of gravity will somehow mysteriously have moved from Paris and Berlin to Warsaw and Prague, let alone Viktor Orban's Budapest. Mm. Um, so I think we, we will go back a little bit. We will stress test this, this vision a little bit down the road, but at least on the atmospherics, Jana, could you kind of walk us through some of kind of the more visible elements of this apparent shift to the east that we saw in the past year? Let me start with France and Germany here, because I think it has a lot to do with both countries being somewhat paralyzed um, after 24th of February 2022 and the famous Franco-German tandem or motor not being um, in sync and working very well. So for Germany, um, the war came really unexpected. Many policymakers in Berlin weren't really, um, yeah, thinking that this was an actual possibility, at least not uh, kind of uh, the biggest land war basically uh, since 45. And um, I mean, just remember that, I mean, it took Germany until I think the 22nd uh, of February 2022 to put Nord Stream 2 uh, to the table and to suspend it. Um, and Together with uh, Emmanuel Macron, um, Chancellor Scholz has really, until the very last moment, tried to revive the Normandy format um, and tried to, uh, yeah, to get um, the Kremlin to the table and to find a negotiated solution. And it is not that long ago that uh, Emmanuel Macron was talking about a rapprochement with the Kremlin. I think that was 2018 or 2019. Where, and, and then he also talked about NATO being brain dead. So 
when the war actually started, I think both countries weren't seen as the natural leaders. Um, and Germany was unable to replicate what it did after 2014, um, the annexation of Crimea, when Germany emerged basically as the country in Europe, bringing uh, the other Europeans on board behind the European sanctions, being seen as an honest broker, at least until they started the Nord Stream 2 project in 2015. And this time, both countries were paralyzed. Um, I think both countries weren't really expecting the war to start. And yeah, also when it came to moral leadership, credibility, I think both countries uh, took a huge hit, whereas Poland and the Baltic states felt very vindicated when it came to their perception of Russia, of Nord Stream 2, European security more broadly, uh, the importance of the military. Um, and so I think that also contributed a big deal to them emerging as um, drivers of the European response to the war and as moral leaders. Although I would take that with a grain of salt, always looking at Poland and the rule of law situation there, but certainly, um, yeah, the Poland, um, the Czech Republic, the Baltic states uh, now feel like the real freedom fighters uh, in the European Union, kind of really fighting for, for European values. Um, and it's not only them, it's also, I think, the Nordic countries, um, particularly Finland, but also Sweden uh, and Denmark, I think, sided a lot with uh, the Central and Eastern European countries on many issues. Yes, and you've just outlined there, Jana, uh, just a few of the issues on which the, the power balance is or has been shifting uh, eastwards. You've mentioned uh, energy, Nord Stream 2, right, defense, uh, security more broadly, and Russia particularly. And this is the, the issue that I want to focus uh, focus on uh, here for just a second, uh, because part of this rebalancing is happening after decades of suspicion and resentment in Eastern Europe that the concerns of these countries weren't being taken seriously, whether that be Poland or the Baltics or Eastern Europe as a whole. Um, in what ways do you think that Europe is now having a different conversation about Russia than about than than 10 years ago? Has there been uh, a reckoning in the style and the substance and the way that the West talks to the East, uh, Timothy? First of all, uh, I don't think there's been any time in history when a country like Estonia has been so influential in European affairs. Kaya Kalas, who's been the Estonian prime minister, who's been very clear on this, um, has also been tremendously influential. So there's no question that in the current crisis, um, some individual East European countries are highly influential. Of course, Viktor Orban, it's important to say, is influential in the other way. No, no, no sense of moral leadership there. Look, um, absolutely, um, you know, future historians and indeed those who might be working with Angela Merkel on her memoirs are going to have to face up to the fact that Germany in particularly massively misjudged Russia, particularly after 2014. Um, the belief really until the eve of the war was that somehow by just keeping talking, maybe making some concessions, keeping strong economic ties, um, you could somehow keep Russia, you know, in 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 the in the as it were in the world of of, of civilized conduct of of civilized nations and so those illusions of what I call the post-war period the post 1989 period were simply blown apart on the 24th of February 
2022. I think it's particularly Germany. Um, France less so. I mean, I mean, Macron had a rather more traditional French approach, which is, you know, the the great powers of Europe. Russia is one of them, as de Gaulle always said, we must always think longer term about Russia. So in that sense, I think Central and East European countries have indeed turned around and said, we told you so. We were warning you for a long time about Russia. Yes. And Yana, is there anything you would like to respond to that in terms of what, how, how, how has the, the conversation on Russia shifted and just... Uh, in the months since, in the year since the invasion? I think it was a pretty harsh awakening in Germany, particularly as Timothy has said, um, German-Russia policy for a long time had a lot of illusions about Russia's nature. Um, and I think many German decision makers believe that one could kind of, yeah, what one could um, see Russia as some sort of responsible stakeholder, although with a lot of problems and yeah, as, as uh, a difficult partner, but still as somewhat uh, a partner um, and that there could be an inclusive European security order. Actually, there was kind of one sentence I think I've heard over and over again by all sorts of politicians, and that was um, European security cannot work against Russia. Uh, so it's only kind of possible with Russia uh, on board. And I think that actually has um, changed, um, at least in large parts of um, uh, yeah, of the political um, scene in uh, in Germany. So um, even I think in the SPD, uh, which is the party, I mean, uh, when we forget about the fringes, the very left and the very right, but the SPD has been the party in Germany traditionally closest uh, to Russia. Um, Lars Klingbeil uh, gave a very important, Lars Klingbeil is the party, or one of the two party chairs um, of the SPD, gave a very important speech on the 18th of October last year, where he basically talked about the errors um, that the SPD has um, uh, yeah, has done um, in the past, not supporting the Solidarność movement in Poland, um, being having too many illusions about Russia's uh, nature, uh, not uh, taking Central and Eastern European countries seriously. And he has mentioned that several times that um, now he is inclined to listen better. Um, at the same time, I have the impression um, after having traveled extensively last year, um, kind of to Tallinn, to Riga, um, to Warsaw, to Prague, that there, um, many, many people aren't convinced yet. They don't believe the Germans. They are still suspicious. They, they think that they don't have no, any proof that the Germans have really come along, that so far it's all talks um, and not really deeds. They think that Seitenwende, they were very hopeful uh, in the very beginning when Chancellor Scholz announced these revolutionary um, decisions on the 27th of February. And they really were hoping, um, yeah, that Germany would now emerge as kind of a leader in their in their sense mm. <laughs> of the word. Um, and there is a lot of disappointment still, and a lot of suspicion how lasting all of this is, and whether Germany would uh, one day again prioritize relationship with Russia and negotiate basically over their heads. I think there is a deep trauma. And I think Germany, uh, despite, for example, Lars Klingbeil uh, going out there and giving that speech, many German decision makers have not been um, 
kind of frank about past mistakes. For example, uh, our former Chancellor Merkel uh, on public, basically she has said, je ne regrette rien, I've done nothing wrong. Um, and actually Olaf Scholz has also just told us that he knew uh, the true nature of, of the Russian regime all along and that he basically prepared everything, kind of the German reaction, mm. which is not that credible in hindsight. So, um, yeah. Timothy? Yes. I agree with everything Jana has just said, but let me just add one thing, which is there's a very interesting comment from a leading German Eastern Europe specialist, um, Gwendolyn Sasser, in her book on the war against Ukraine, where he where she says that Germany needs to decolonize its thinking about Eastern Europe. Uh, that is to say, it's seeing it through Russian eyes. And I think there's still a way to go on that, a way to go for people in Germany in particular, but also in France and other West European countries, to take Ukraine seriously in itself as a major European state, and therefore also to take seriously the whole agenda of, of EU enlargement, which, by the way, if Ukraine actually became a member of the European Union, then indeed the center of gravity would, I think, shift e even more to the east. Um, and at the same time, what you see in German and French discourse is ultimately still Russia's more important. Russia's more important long term. And therefore, you have this very ambiguous position where you don't want Ukraine to lose, but you're not absolutely clear about Ukraine really wanting to win, by which we mean regaining all of its territory, including the Donbass and Crimea. So I think that ambiguity is still very much there. Yana, any thoughts on the decolonization? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, just another example, which I think is still striking. So prior to the war, um, we already talked a lot about arming Ukraine. And I remember that our foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, traveled to Kiev and basically made the argument that Germany cannot send um, basically weapons to Ukraine because kind of this idea that basically German tanks could be used against Russia was um, because of the historical atrocities that Germany has committed against Russia, that, that yeah, that this was not um, acceptable or that, that the German government could never uh, be in favor of uh, anything like this. And that shows you that many Germans for a long time have basically taken Russia as the successor state of the Soviet Union and have not paid attention to the atrocities that the Germans in World War II have committed in Belarus um, and in Ukraine. And Timothy Snyder's famous book, Bloodlands, uh, uh, tells this story. But um, when I think back also uh, uh, kind of and, and remember my history lesson, so basically the history of, of these places, Ukraine, Belarus, but also Eastern Poland, uh, was not really uh, taught, at least not in my school. So I think what, what for, for Germany, this is also, I think, the task now to learn more about um, our own history, about European history, and to have a closer look at, at those places and those countries and, and their history. But basically be a bit more positive because maybe um, I have also uh, not shed enough light on the positive developments in Germany uh, in the past year. I think we have um, come a long way here and our thinking about Ukraine is now, I think, has uh, significantly changed um, in, 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 in this past year. 
and also the perception of Russia. As I said, this idea uh, that we kind of need Russia now to be secure uh, is not shared by many any longer. Now, this thinking that we basically need to guarantee our security against Russia um, has become much more prominent. And so I think Germany has come a long way. But sometimes we Germans think um, just because we have told everybody that we have changed, everybody believes that we have changed. And I think we underestimate how deep um, the the mistrust is in Central and Eastern Europe vis-a-vis Germany and how suspicious (laughs) people still are. And that we really need to prove that um, we now also prioritize Central and Eastern Europe over Russia. Hmm. Timothy? Uh, Just very quickly, because I know we need to move on. Um, the European Council on Foreign Relations, um, um, uh, for which, of course, Jana works in partnership with my Oxford research project on Europe in a changing world, um, did recently some polling on reactions to the war in Ukraine. And what is so fascinating is that in the course of a year, German public opinion has actually come much closer to Polish public opinion. So I would say that in many respects, German public opinion, the German public are actually ahead of their government and perhaps particularly of their chancellor. And that is, I think, a very encouraging sign. We, we actually covered first, first polls ever, a few weeks ago in this podcast. So very happy to hear, hear them quoted here again. Um, I think moving on a little bit to, to Brussels, because when, when uh, a few weeks ago, the New York Times wrote an article on, on this topic and, and you were both quoted in it, and following that, um, Ms. Rahman from Eurasia Group reacted to it, saying, interesting read, um, from my point of view, which is kind of much more Brussels heavy, in reality, the policy hasn't changed much in the balance of power in Brussels, in the world of EU policy making. Um, in other words, is this kind of leadership that we saw uh, in Poland, in other central and Eastern European states, is it purely kind of a moral leadership or has there has there been some hard policy political change as well in the world of eu policy making starting with timothy um first of all i'd be very cautious in using the term moral leadership to describe the law and justice party in poland which is in the process of demolishing democracy or at least trying to demolish democracy in the way that Viktor Orban has succeeded in doing in Hungary. So I'd leave the moral bit out of it. But leadership, yes. But the question then is, and this is what um, Mustafa Rahman came back on, and I think quite rightly, okay, but what about the Eurozone? What about environmental policy? Um, uh, What about the Inflation Reduction Act in the US? You know, what about all these big core EU policy areas? And his point, and I think he's clearly right on this, is that on these big policy areas, um, it's uh, the larger and richer countries that are still more calling the shots. Also because um, Poland is missing a spectacular opportunity. After Brexit and with the importance of the war in Ukraine, a, a different Polish government would have the opportunity to revitalize the so-called Weimar Triangle between France, Germany, and Poland and become one of the really leading powers in the European Union. But actually, the Law and Justice Party in Poland is campaigning to be re-elected in the elections this autumn on a vehemently 
anti-German uh, platform. I watch Polish state TV. I speak Polish. I watch Polish state TV now and then for my sins, rather damaging for my health. But um, um, and I can't tell you just how vile and vehement and insistent and mendacious the anti-German propaganda is. And that means that that potential strategic partnership, um, to put it mildly, is very limited. We will go back to Poland in a second, but just to, to circle back on on the world of, of, of the EU. Uh, Jana, you follow that quite closely. Um, has there been much change in the way the EU does business um, and rebalancing to the east a little bit or not so much? So let's have a maybe more detailed look. What did the Central and Eastern European countries basically drive? Which decisions did they influence? Mm-hmm. I think, um, as I said in the beginning, with the caveat that the peace, uh, yeah, to, to call the peace a moral leader is difficult, but I think what, what um, the Central and Eastern European countries did is really um, to to make the case for Ukraine inside the European Union and to push um, the other countries and especially Germany um, when it comes to the EU sanctions policy. I remember um, the first meeting in Brussels about the first sanctions package and um, everything was already agreed um, carefully um, prior to the war, um, what the European countries would do uh, if the war started. But then I think the push came from the Central and Eastern European countries, for example, to include um, uh, SWIFT. And that was something where Germany initially was very reluctant. That was one of the um, the issues. I think the countries have been very much um, the drivers of um, uh, this idea to have a candidate status for, for Ukraine. Um, also, when it comes to military support for, for Kiev, um, they have pushed, um, especially Germany, uh, quite a bit, um, sometimes also treated it unfairly, um, I have to say, but, but still. So I think if you look at um, areas, so sanctions, policy, uh, enlargement, um, yeah, military support uh, for Kiev. Also, um, the whole debate about the visa ban, which then didn't materialize. But um, I mean, to a certain extent, there the, the was basically new, new regulation. And Germany um, also here gave in to a certain extent. So I think the countries have been shaping uh, Europe's answer to the war. Um, to quite an extent. But I'm totally uh, with Timothy that when it comes to the overall picture and uh, po- political weight in the European Union, I think those countries even taken together um, cannot um, kind of push things uh, against uh, the will of both France and Germany. So um, I think, yeah, those countries influenced the, or influenced the debate to, to a certain extent, but I think Germany is still the big fat power giant um, at the heart of the European Union, and everything still runs through Berlin. Yeah. So, and and if you look at um, just the structure, so coming back maybe to Poland, it's outside the common currency, it's struggling to embrace the Green Deal, it's not really embrace, uh, engaged in EU defense efforts, uh, now buying South Korean and American. So in many um, areas that are central to the EU, um, Poland is not really a player. And I wholeheartedly agree with Timothy that Poland so far has not managed to transform its wartime capital, which it certainly has uh, gained, um, into kind of real power in the European Union. 
maybe that will change or would change uh, under Tusk. But that is still a wide open field, I'd say, the outcome of the Polish election. Mm. Timothy? Just briefly to add to that, I mean, Germany is, of course, Europe's central power. Die Zentralmacht Europas, Hans-Peter Schwarz wrote 30 years ago. There's a variant of what we've been talking about, because we've been talking as if it's, as it were, the center of gravity going to the Central and East European countries or remaining with France and Germany. But there is a variant in which if Germany really became serious about its eastward enlargement of the EU, and I think ultimately of NATO, but first of all, the EU being a German strategic priority, then you would have a different uh, situation because you would have Germany, Europe's central power, actually pushing the agenda of what would in effect be an eastward shift. And of course, leaving France feeling rather uncomfortable as the center moved ever further away from Paris. Yes, and, and Timothy, I just wanted to, to challenge maybe a little bit of what you've said about the uh, relation, the, the sort of the EU's outlook on, on Poland, um, because it seems like, I mean, it, it seemed like for a while, the, uh, I mean, Poland's stance welcoming uh, re refugees uh, primarily was the reason why uh, some of the uh, funds that were initially being withheld uh, with the conditionality mechanism were, were eventually dispersed. My understanding is some of that money is still being withheld as of this writing, but more has been released than would have been the case had Poland not welcome, welcomed uh, as, ma as many uh, Ukrainian refugees as it has. So uh, given that there, there are going to be parliamentary elections before November this year and that uh, Donald Tusk very could very well be emerged as the, as the new uh, leader, um, do you think that that a Tusk premiership could manage to uh, translate the sort of moral leadership that Poland has built into political clout in Brussels? So, first of all, this election is absolutely crucial. It's crucial for the future of democracy in Poland. Hi there. If you want to listen to the rest of Timothy's concerns about the fate of democracy in Poland, you have to join us on our Patreon, where he develops that point in further detail and where we look at the nuances of the shift to the east and what eastern central europe actually means what are the differences between bulgaria and romania between hungary and poland all those fascinating nuances which make the complex reality of european politics um so if you want to listen to that join us on patreon otherwise stay with us we're moving on to the outro thank you very much to the both of you for this great conversation on this narrative about the shifting of politics towards the East. And I think it was very important to add some nuances to what the East meant, some nuances to whether that, that balance of power was moving East and what does that actually mean. Um, so thank you so much for both of you for coming on and helping us paint a more nuanced picture of what's going on. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you, Jana. So, Timothy Garden, Ash, and Jana Oglierian are, are both out. This has been a fascinating conversation on the shifting of the power balance towards the east. The east. What are some of your initial uh, reactions, Francois? 
the initial part, sorry, the initial part of the conversation, I was really thinking about a series of tweets that came out from a French MP. He's a Renaissance MP, so a Macron MP, Jean-Charles Lassonneur. He's a former diplomat. And he says, French diplomacy has always underestimated, with a rare condescension, the analyses of the small countries from the East, obsessed with their frontiers, but incapable of seeing the big picture. Now, obviously, the, the, the second part is a bit, it's a bit sarcastic, saying, you know, the, the, the French would come over to Poland saying, sure, we understand you've got historical grievances against um against Russia, but if you see the larger picture, we need Russia in the, in, in the European security architecture. Um, so it's good to, to, talk, to talk about this and, and cover this frustration that has been growing in the East and has only been vindicated since. So I think it was very valuable to have that conversation to map that out. Yes. And what do you, let me, let me try to uh, uh, sort of like ask you about uh, some of the aspects of this conversation. Um, you know, one of the lines of questioning that we deployed was, uh, well, you know, Poland, uh, you know, because Poland has been so welcoming to uh, upwards of one million uh, Ukrainian refugees, the European Commission has been soft peddling uh, Poland's rule yeah. of problems, right? Um, and then, and then, sort of, and and then Timothy went on uh, about the um, about the nature of those problems, and he said that. Uh, the, the Law and Justice Party in Poland is just about to eradicate democracy, is one step away from doing in Poland what Viktor Orban has already achieved in Hungary. Do you think those uh, concerns are are uh, overheated? To be honest, I it's I, I don't want I don't care if these are important issues, but it's one of those it's one of those issues where you know I always see the kind of the headlines. And I understand, you know, there's, there's always a lot, of, a lot of conflicts about, you know, the, the nature of the Supreme Court, for example, and so on. Um, so I don't have a strong understanding of what's going on in, in Poland, so I, I want to be careful what I'm saying. But I think, you know, high, higher courts are usually, because it's, it's often a point that's raised when you talk about Hungary, the nature and composition of kind of Supreme Courts, high administrative courts, higher constitutional courts, whatever, is always a matter of controversy. In France, for example, in the Constitutional Court, you have former political leaders, uh, former presidents. Um, many are nominated by the president, so it's so it's always quite tricky. I, I, I you know, Timothy has been traveling across Europe for for a long time, so I, you know, I, I, I do not doubt that he he feels quite strongly about it, and he's seen things that have made him very uncomfortable. Um, it's just one of those issues where. I feel like I would need to, to to speak Polish. I would need to actually do some proper work my own to have a a strong opinion on. Yes, and um, yes, I mean, I, I I have to I have to confess my my own view on the on the matter is that uh, for all of Timothy's uh, concerns about Poland's rule of law, the reality is that the EU itself has seems to have uh, you know seems to have been assuaged in some of these concerns, at least partly because it has already been disbursing some of the money that was being yeah. withheld from Poland as, as part of this conditionality mechanism. So so again, the before the war in Ukraine, the mechanism was being invoked to withhold next generation uh, funds uh, from Poland. But after the war in Ukraine, those funds were gradually released 
because the understanding was that uh, Poland was was making a great effort with with all the refugees that is, it, it is welcomed. Whereas mm-hmm. Hungary, for instance, has not had that yeah. that sort of milder uh, treatment. Um, so you know, my, my challenge to uh, to Timothy would be well. You know, if if the rule of law situation in Poland was so dire as you seem to claim it is, then the EU surely wouldn't have uh, released all the money uh, that but has been. Th- I, th- this is where my quibble a little bit with you. I'm not taking exactly Timothy's position, but I think there is a political reality, which is getting in a fight with Poland at a moment where Poland is at the front line and helping Ukraine is in the front line that you know welcoming Ukraine refugees. I think there's a political reality that has changed, which means that you can't afford to pick that fight at the moment. Um, but moving on a little bit, um, I found it really interesting that Timothy was saying there's, there's a kind of strong anti-German narrative being built. And there's this guy on, 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 on Twitter who interacts quite a lot with us and you know, he's a Franco-Polish, um, Franco-Polish uh, geopolitical analyst. And he's been making this, building this idea that we should stop talking about Central Europe and Eastern Europe because Central Europe is kind of a, the, the sphere of influence of Germany and uh, Eastern Europe is a sphere of, of influence of Russia. And he's making the case of kind of intermarium, uh, kind, of kind of space between those two areas that would be dominated by Poland. And I think to some extent there's been an attempt by Poland here to you know, maybe not build properly an intermarium, but at least kind of build its own political space within Europe, which is not in the kind of uh, space of Germany, um, and using, leveraging its opposition to Russia to build that space. So I find that quite quite interesting to see that there's been really a, a desire by Poland to kind of use this conflict to really get a position it never really had in Europe. This is, you know, Poland is an economy that's doing quite well. Um, there's been political stability, whether you like the regime or not, there's been political stability at some point, political stability means you kind of aspire to greater things. And I think that the, this war has been the moment where Poland has been trying to step up. I guess the, the other question I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, uh, what about the Baltics? Uh, do you think, I mean, we seem to, we have we have approached uh, Eastern Europe, the Eastern European flank as a homogeneous sort of block. Uh, yeah. When in reality, you know, there there are substantial differences between, say, you know the Baltics and um, Romania, right? Which is yeah. which is also challenged in other ways by by Russia. Um, but what do you, uh, do you th- did, what did you what did you think? How, how did um, how did our two guests engage with the uh, complexity of this region uh, internally? So I find it really interesting, actually, that uh, Yana talked about um, China a little bit. Estonia has been leading a pretty major uh, trade conflict with China over the past few few weeks, standing up for its principles and um, having actually relatively little support from the EU because it's Estonia and, you know, had France picked a fight with China, I'm pretty sure that there'd been much more headlines about it. Um, I think, you know, Baltic countries here have been taking a position of leadership, which is quite remarkable, partly because they're afraid they might be next, but and partly because of a history and they've, they've known how brutal the, the Russian regime can be. But it's really quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable because they're, you know, they're, 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 they're David's next to Goliath and they're standing up um, remarkably bravely. So, again, it's, it's, not, it's not a region of the world I know, I know really well, so I wouldn't be careful what I'm, what I'm saying. But uh, in my opinion, it's, it's, 
even more courageous than Poland, because Poland is a larger country. Uh, you know, it's 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 its borders aren't quite sim- in the same dangerous situation as the Baltics are. But uh, yeah, as Timothy said, of course, there's a reason why they, they they can afford to take those positions is because they're part of the EU and part of NATO. But still, quite a remarkable position for them to take. Um, another topic, actually, I want to talk a little bit about is um, I know you, one you want to talk about is the divide between Euro Gaulists and Euro uh, Atlanticists. Um, I know you want to say something about that, actually, Jorge. Well, you know, I think um, uh, the the uh, sort of primary hurdle that we run into when we're uh, appro- uh, uh, approaching this question, and I think this has been a constant hurdle in this podcast, is that, you know, that doesn't that dichotomy doesn't really address the role of defense spending because when we are uh, when we are examining the issue of raising Europe's defense spending to ma- to meet its two percent of GDP commitment to NATO, actually that is um, both that is supported by both Euro Atlanticists and Euro Gaullists. Yeah. So that's so the, the the dichotomy there is not a revealing one. To the, I mean, there, there is a real difference between those two, obviously. The Euro-Atlanticists want, to, want Europe to be embedded in NATO and stand as uh, a reliable partner to the United States, whereas the Euro-Gaullists want uh, Europe to be an independent and sovereign power. Uh, but both want higher def- uh, spending on defense. Yeah. So, so that sort of obscures uh, rather than clarifies the 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 question of defense spending, in my view, but it's a question uh, of leadership, in, in my opinion. And we, we've had Benjamin Haddad on the podcast many times before, and you know, um, I know people like him have been quite frustrated by the fact Yana was talking about it. The reason why Germany ultimately decided to send tanks to uh, Ukraine wasn't because France decided to. Now, there's been a, a weird, theo- basically theological conversation about whether the tanks France sent was actually re- real tanks or whether it was armored vehicles. But disregarding that conversation, France decided to send those tanks first, urging Germany to do so as well. It's only when America decided to do so that Germany followed suit. And Jana was right. The risk of relying too heavily on this kind of Europe-Atlantic uh, strand is, one, what happens when you get a situation of je t'aime, moi non plus? where you're turning towards America, but America is not turning towards you. Something we saw under Trump, most famously, but we could see uh, in the future again. You know, even under Obama, we saw some of that. That's the first risk. And the second risk is kind of, as Yana said, it's a sleep pill. The risk is you kind of follow suits at, uh, uh, America's leadership without actually building leadership of your own. Obviously, the kind of Eurogaulist option is one I prefer a little bit, but it's 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 not it's not a case about you know we need to be against America and we need you know to be apart from America. I think cases we need to build our own entity, capable of acting on our own, in partnership with the United States. But it doesn't mean it, it's not a case for you know Europe alone. It's a case for Europe as an, an actor, Europe as an entity capable of acting for itself. And I think that's as much as I agree with you. There's you know in, in some aspects. In some aspects, the Eurogaulists and Euroatlanticists have been have been agreeing on a lot of things, especially on support for for Ukraine. Um, I just think we shouldn't forget that this kind of point about leadership is very central for the future of Europe. Yes, absolutely. Great. So I think we can wrap up here. If you wanted to listen to our wonderful conversation on this kind of 
the divisions between these eastern and central blocs, the nuances between Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, the Baltic states. A wonderful conversation with Jana and Timothy. You can join us on our Patreon for as little as five euros a month. But if you can't afford the five euros a month and uh, don't want to get essentially twice as much content, you, you can do so. But there's other things you can do to help us continue to grow week after week. Small things like writing review on Apple Podcasts. These really help to get the visibility up. You can send a podcast to a friend. You can share on social media. There's many small things you can do to make sure the podcast continues to grow.